Morning, church. <clears throat> Brian had asked if there were certain songs that he wanted me to play for this uh, in preparation for this, and I said, anything that won't make me tear up and cry. You did not do that for me, thank you. I couldn't even sing, but it was a joy to hear the Conti singing and others singing behind me. Um, very stirring. Um, we do have that waiting for us, and it is an exciting thing, a motivating thing. So I have some questions for you as we start off this morning. As you sit here today, I want to, to know what motivated you to come here this morning. What was it, if anything, was on your mind as you got up this morning to get ready and drove here, knowing that there are other things that you could be doing? Is it just simply something that you do on Sundays? Perhaps you want to set a good example for your children, establish some good habits that might continue as they become adults and possibly parents themselves. Maybe there's a little guilt or fear of getting that phone call, wondering where you were. These aren't necessarily bad reasons per se, but what happens if the phone calls don't come? What happens if the texts don't come? Or what if you don't have any children? What if you don't have any examples to set? What if coming on Sundays became a significant risk to your life or to your livelihood? What would compel you to keep making the effort to come and show up? And beyond just showing up on Sundays, what motivates you to fully give yourself to the church, to this local body? Pat and others have said that we don't just join a local church, we submit to one, or we covenant with one, and this requires more than just coming on Sundays, doesn't it? So what is it that compels you to press in, to lean in, to make this a priority, to make us a priority? What compels you to strive for holiness? We read in our Bibles that we are to be holy as God is holy, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to take this seriously, to press on, as Brian read this morning, towards maturity, towards perfection, to agonize over it. What compels you to strive for it? And lastly, what most, and perhaps most important question for us today, what most sustains you when life and ministry with the people in this room threatens to be too difficult to bother with? Is all this just something you've always done? Or simply you resolve, you muster the strength to do each Sunday, or maybe Wednesdays, or maybe Tuesdays, if I don't have anything else going on. But you couldn't really articulate why you've come to an unbelieving friend. You know that God will be faithful to complete what He started, so you find yourself perhaps a bit lazy or apathetic towards your sin. And you certainly know you can't fix the people in this room, so why even bother? The result of this type of attitude can produce seasons of joyless, critical, frustrated attendance. attendance. And this has no place in the grand design for us as God's people. I've lived there. I know what that's like. So if you're like me and you find yourself perhaps in that season this morning, and I know we can all be there at various times, I want to help expand your mind, to expand your view of 
God's church. And in particular, to expand your view of the importance of this local congregation, these people sitting beside you. And perhaps along the way, I'd like to provide us with some reminders that will help maybe to better motivate us to lean in and to serve alongside one another as God intended us to. Picking up on previous sermons, my main point this morning is that the local congregation that truly believes who they are in Christ will eagerly and joyfully accept their responsibilities to protect, to proclaim, and to provide an apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how difficult that is. This is not the job of the preachers or elders or only a select few serious Christians that you might think of. We all share in the new identity that Brian talked about a few weeks ago. And so we all share in these new responsibilities that come with that new identity. So what is a local congregation? What is the local church? And what makes us so important? Why are we even preaching about this? Quick definition I'll give you from Jonathan Lehman from Nine Marks. I think captures it pretty well. It says a local church or a local congregation is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So why is this so important? What makes it unique and worth giving our lives to? Now to help answer that, I'd like to look again at the first part of my main point. And that is that the local congregation that truly believes who they are in Christ. That is a critical piece to all of this. Now Jonathan Lehman might provide a good definition, but we can't just memorize a good definition and think that it's going to be shifting in our life. There is more to who we are than just those words that Jonathan Lehman articulates. There's more to who we are and more to what we must believe about ourselves. As a reminder, behaviors always reveal what we truly think about something. It's always. We might think we can fake it for a period of time, but we're not going to be able to do it, fake it in ways that truly matter, not to God. And you won't be able to fake it with the people in this room. Not for very long anyways. If we find that we are distant from the body, apathetic towards our sin, or the sins of those around us, or if we are uninterested in the lives of those in this body, then we need to question whether we truly believe what God says about us in His Word. However, if we truly deepen our souls, want to be a people who take seriously the responsibilities that God has given to us as this congregation, we must first be gripped by our new identity because it is who we are that determines what we do. That pattern is all throughout Scripture. We must first come to understand the truth. As it's revealed in Scripture, then our joyful obedience flows from that. Flows from a heart that's been changed by those truths. That's how the new covenant works. And we need to not get it backwards because if you do, you're no longer living in the power of the gospel. You're living according to your own flesh and your own power. And that is dangerous. Now, the last several weeks, Brian and Pat have been sharing with us what the Bible has to say about the church. 
Those of us who are called out. The ecclesia, the, the one set apart for God, for his holy purposes. And this people of God is described in a host of ways throughout the scriptures. Just a few of them here that I think are very important for us today is, we're described as the temple of the living God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household of God. Now, I know we're all familiar with those words, and I don't want these words to just pass by you without astounding you. Again, what do you think about these realities and the depths of which you, they impact you are impacted by what you think about them, what you truly believe about them? Perhaps reading a passage or two will help us. So really think about and meditate on what it means to be. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you, and he's talking to a church, to a local congregation, do you not know that you are God's temple? And God's Spirit dwells in you. That God that Brian spoke about in Isaiah that fills the temple, that holy, holy, holy God, we are being built up into a house for that God. And His Spirit now lives within us. That should amaze us. We are also the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And Paul later says in Ephesians, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up this body of Christ. Christ is our head. and We are his body. That's a big deal. We're also referred to as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 23-32 gives this analogy between a husband and a wife. And it says, for the husband is the head of the wife. And he relates it now to even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love, their, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, us, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This is a very intimate relationship that we have as his bride. We're also called the household of God. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. There's the temple again. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How often do you dwell on that? That we in this room are being built up. Whatever part this local congregation has in the grand narrative, we are being built up 
into a dwelling place for that God that Isaiah saw in the temple. It's an incredible thing. And if you noticed how intertwined these realities, how deep these realities are with God, we're not just being built up into some temple, some place of worship, but it's the place where the living God resides. And the Holy Spirit resides in us, helping us guaranteeing that we'll get there. We aren't just members of some collective group, some body of people who think similarly about all the same stuff or some club, but we are members of the body whose head is Christ. And we're not just some metaphorical beloved in some general sense. We are truly the bride of Jesus Christ. And we are being made into a pure and spotless bride. It's his prize, his reward for his work. It's the most intimate of all relationships. And we also aren't just a household with moms and dads and kids and, and families. But we have all been adopted into the household of God. We are part of his family. We consider this the omnipotent, omniscient, Alpha and the Omega, the great I Am that talked to Moses in the bush, is our Father. We aren't just any household. And this is who we are as a congregation. You can't dwell on these truths enough. But we need to. We need to truly believe that these are, this is our new identity in Christ. If we are truly His, and we are part of this congregation, born again, baptized into this congregation, into Christ. This can be said of us. This is who we are as part of our, our identity. And I must ask you again, more specifically, which of these, as you dwell on these, motivate you to come here on Sundays? As you consider, we are God's temple. We are His body. We are the bride of Christ. We are his household. Which one of those motivates you to come here on Sundays? Which one will motivate you to fully give yourself to this local church every day, not just here on Sundays? Which one motivates you to love one another when it's difficult to love one another, to love one another as Christ intended that we would in John 13, 35 and in John 17, that the world would know the love for one another would be so evident that the world would know that God sent Jesus into the world. That kind of love. Which one of these truths are about us stir you to strive for holiness without which nobody sees the Lord? Which ones are going to be most sustaining when the individuals beside you make ministry very, very difficult? I have my answers. But I encourage you to continue meditating on what the Bible says about who we are as a people of God and consider the implications for this local congregation and consider its power to motivate. I take time to emphasize this because I'm continuing to learn that the church is arguably the single most important and God-glorifying part of all of creation. Even the universe with all of its beauty and all of its complexity and the more we learn about it, it still falls short of what the church was created by God to do. 
and to reveal. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The creation does speak, and it does reveal. And those are true and glorious things in its own right, but compare this to what we've already heard from Ephesians 3 about us. Paul says in Ephesians 3, To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And here it is, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, through this body, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. As staggering and as beautiful and as Christ-exalting as the universe is, it remains a voiceless undercurrent of knowledge that stops short of revealing the full, multifaceted aspects of God's wisdom that only we can do together. The universe does, not reveal, does reveal exactly what God intended it to reveal. I'm not taking anything away from the creation. But there is something that even this vast universe takes a back seat to. Something that it will one day be ruled by, in fact. And something that this world and the angels will be judged by. I'm talking about this church, God's church, and we are part of that. And I want to drive this home this morning because we need to be reminded how important the body of Christ is to God. And I want our lives to reflect the fact that the church really is the most important reality in all of creation. And we get to be a part of it. This local congregation is where the manifold wisdom of God is revealed. It's where all the magic happens. If your view of the church stops at some abstract sort of big C level, big C church level, or you continue to push back against all the call that we've, that we've been hearing about to think more specifically, more locally about the church, and you say, yeah, I know I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. I'm part of God's big C church. What else do you want from me here at CBC? I'm not signing that. I'm not committing to that. I'm not submitting to that. If that is you this morning, and if that is how you think of the church, and your part in this, I believe that it will have consequences both in your life and the lives of those around you here in this body. And if you press in, you dig in your feet and harden your heart against these realities and the implications that we'll continue to talk about today, then you may be revealing something very dangerous about your own position before the Lord. I'm not saying that you have to covenant here with us at CBC in order to be a Christian. But I am saying that you need to submit to and covenant somewhere. You need to be a part of a local congregation. Anything else is disobedient at best. If you don't do this, you're cutting yourself off from the very body of Christ, the head. And that is a dangerous thing. So if you've heard anything over these last several weeks, you've heard that your salvation is more 
than a you and God thing. Practically speaking, you were meant to live out your faith in the context of this a local church. And the people you are sitting by here today, this congregation of believers, are an irreplaceable and critical part of God's revealing His wisdom to the heavenly hosts. And I don't care if you're six or 86, you embody the most important people in my life. And that makes me one of the most important people in your life. Every single person in this congregation, this household, this body, is infinitely important to one another. It cannot be overstated. I confess I haven't always viewed it this way. I can remember growing up, most of my closest friends and most of my closest relationships were outside this local church. I've grown up here. So I know what it's like to to have fellowship and relationships and to minimize the importance of a local body. I know what that's like. So I know how to get this wrong. But the degree to which we believe that these relationships are preeminent, most important to God, and therefore most important to us, it will impact our friendships, our priorities, our relationships. It will impact how we function as a body of believers, as a local congregation. Remember, our actions always flow from what we truly believe about something. If we believe that we are collectively interdependent, no matter our age, and we are only as strong as our weakest member, then it will have massive implications for us on how we prioritize our time, our resources, who we call, who we talk to, who we visit. It will have massive implications on this. Consider Paul's words to the church in Corinth. My dad read part of this this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. I want you to listen to how important each one of us are. For just as the body, something we can all relate to, For just as this body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That's amazing. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are in fact indispensable. You feel weak as a six-year-old in this body? Maybe you feel insignificant? Maybe you've only been a believer for a week. 
You feel insignificant? God says you're indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, as Kim is suffering right now, all of us suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are interdependent. We are important. None of us, we're irreplaceable. And I want to make this even more concrete for you. What this means to me is that Aiden Conti is more important to me than my best friends from high school or college. Connor Seelock is more necessary to my walking in obedience than the most devoted believer at work or at my school. And Mignon Goh, Jan Cunningham, Kim Willman, Kaylee Auten, Barb Peters, everybody in this room, you should all be greater sources of encouragement to me than the most committed saints I could ever read about in some Desiring God article or some video. Or perhaps even the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Simply put, when you become a part of the body of Christ, by grace, through faith, and then you enter into a covenant fellowship with this congregation, you become a priority for me. You become one of the most important, most needed people in my life. And I to you. We are indeed very different. If you're questioning how different we are from just a club or a sports team, we are very different. We're very different than any other organized institution you can imagine on this planet. And all of this is rooted in who we are as God's people. The question is, do we truly believe it? Has it taken root in our heart? Has it affected the way we live? If it has, I want to move on to the second part of my main point. If it has taken root, if these truths about who we are as a congregation have taken root in our heart, we will eagerly and joyfully accept our responsibilities to protect, proclaim, and provide an apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how difficult it will be. And as I said earlier, this is not the job of the preacher or elders or only a select few serious Christians, because we all share in this new glorious identity. We all share in the responsibilities. You need to get that, especially when it's difficult. You're not off the hook. No one is off the hook. If we care at all about our witness as a local congregation, if we care at all about our revealing God's manifold wisdom to the heavenly places, we must recognize something very important. We must recognize that the number one obstacle to all of this is you and me, our sin. That is the number one obstacle. Sin within this body will wreck everything. 
and it must be dealt with. And it is being dealt with. But we need one another to effectively do this. The call to holiness is clear all throughout the Bible. I'll just take 1 Peter, who quotes the Old Testament. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, there's an identity call there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We have this promise, but we don't sit idly by. We pursue it because he has made us holy. And we help others attain it as well. Hebrews 12, 14 also says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you're not striving, that's a dangerous thing. And we need one another to help us strive. We cannot truly believe that we are the temple of God. The place where that holy, holy, holy God resides and we still remain apathetic to our sin within that temple. It's inconceivable. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. If we truly believe we're the temple of God, we will take our sin in this temple seriously. And there is something motivating to me, something sweet about being the bride of Christ that compels us to want to deal with our sin as well. Listen to how it all ends in Revelation 19, 7 through 8. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. His bride had made herself ready. Ready. Now, this actually makes sense. I've never known a bride who had a future wedding planned that was not eagerly making herself ready for that big day. No bride is apathetic and non caring about getting herself ready for the big day. Our groom, Jesus Christ, has been promised and certainly is the most deserving of any groom to have a pure and spotless bride. If we love Jesus, if we love our groom as his bride, why would we want to tolerate impurities within the bride? Why would we want to tolerate sin? It doesn't make sense. We would strive for holiness. We must take sin seriously here at CBC. And if we desire to be a healthy, God-glorifying church, we must understand that God has designed that the church discipline is the responsibility of the congregation. Again, church discipline is not the responsibility of the three elders. It is our responsibility. It is part of our priestly responsibilities to protect the temple and to protect the household of God. There's nothing more important to the priest Yes, they offer sacrifices. Yes, they do those things. But they also are tasked to protect. And that is our job as well as a congregation, as the people of this congregation. And it is also part of how we proclaim the power of the gospel. For what power is there in a congregation full of sinful, unrepentant people? 
gives no glory to God. There's no power in that. Consider Paul's strong indictment of the congregation in Corinth when he says in chapter 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are, you church, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn that this man's sin instead of embracing it? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And he goes on to say later, just in general terms, purge the evil person from among you. For the Corinthian church, having this guy continue to fellowship and to be welcomed to fellowship among the church as a professing Christian while boldly engaging in this terrible sin is exactly the opposite of what we want to be proclaiming to a lost and dying world. And Paul felt the need to indict them for it. We are to be distinct from the world, a people set apart for holy purposes unto our God. And the new covenant now ensures that this will be a reality for the true church. And everybody else needs to be purged. Everything else about even the people in this room that's not in line with who God is and His character needs to be purged. Whether it's the sin of the individual or perhaps the entire person, we must purge the evil, but also at times we may need to purge the evil person. We need to be willing to do the hard thing. It's important for us to understand that we have been given congregational authority to determine who stays and who needs to be sent away. Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We all know that. We're all familiar with that. But he goes on to say, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And later in verse 18, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers uh, along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen... Even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, a non-believer. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those same words again, that same authority is reiterated in the context of church discipline. These keys, this authority of binding and loosing is very serious stuff, but we have been entrusted with this responsibility. And this should not surprise us. We should not feel as if, who are we? Paul says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Have you ever thought about that? He goes on to say, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? If we can't expect to handle matters pertaining to one another and sin within the body, 
how are we going to be expected to judge angels? To judge the world? To rule? This authority has been given to the church, and it is clearly to be used in the context of church discipline. But we need not be arrogant about it. We need to do it humbly. We need to wield this authority in a humble manner, and it's necessary that we do it. Because a congregation who is serious about one another's purity and maturity will take this seriously because they want to be holy as He is holy. Now only God can know the heart and the true condition of that person, but we have the authority and we have the responsibility to affirm one's profession by the way they're living their life. Paul says we're not to judge those outside the world, outside the church. We're supposed to judge those inside, judge their works. It's how we affirm their profession or not. And we accomplish this through the process of church discipline. And as we talk more about this, I want to say that we are not called to do church discipline. Again, I want to constantly, not just with this topic, but with every topic, I want to constantly be directing us back to who we are to be as a church. Not just what we are to do. If we aim at doing church discipline apart from remembering who we are in Christ, we will likely not do it well. I would prefer that in all things we pursue being a people who love Jesus and long to see His bride presented to Him in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And if we all long for that day, we will all be more likely to naturally deal with sin in appropriate and loving ways, even when it's difficult. Who we are determines what we do and how we do it. I also want to make sure we understand that church discipline is not just purging the evil one from among you. That's the last step. It might require this, but hopefully not. But this is way downstream of so many other attempts to restore that individual. It is a process where we go to him or her in private and then with one or two others, then before the church, and then, and only then, if they haven't repented, if they haven't turned and they're showing their true colors, we send them out, not being able to affirm their profession. And they're treated as non-believers. But this takes a ton of time. and It takes an enormous amount of love and humility and patience. We should not be quick to purge unless the situation warrants. And I believe these will be few. If we are to be passionate about the purity of the bride and to be passionate about the holiness of this temple of God, the process of church discipline needs to be wrapped up within a passion for making disciples and helping one another grow in maturity and Christ-likeness. That is all that this is. And all of it must be rooted in our love for Christ and our love for one another. Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, and also um, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You want to proclaim the truth of the gospel? Love one another. Exercising church discipline without love will never 
go well, and it will never accomplish what God intends. Doing it correctly will require love for Christ and love for one another. Without a love for Christ, you won't be likely to take sin seriously enough in yourself or others. And without a love for one another, you will either be too harsh in your holding them accountable, or you will fail to see the need to say anything at all. That's usually my path. After all, what would compel you to have that difficult, awkward conversation with that person who offended you or is caught in sin if it weren't for love for that person? You would be more likely to just write them off or sweep it under the rug, as we so often do. And it's done more often than you think. And certainly more often than it should. Discipline also needs to be rooted in humility. Both Jesus and Paul speak to that. They say, Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye before removing the speck out of your brother's. And Paul says, in the context of these sins within Corinth, he says, take care lest you too stumble. Truly believing this will have an effect on how we approach that brother or sister and how we, how we deal with that sin. It's important that we exercise church discipline not from a position of pride, as if we have it all together, but rather from a position of humility that communicates to that individual, I'm in this same boat with you. I'm here to help. It could just as easily be me on the other side of this conversation. Let's kill this sin together. The Spirit will help us. That goes a long way in restoring that brother or sister. And if it doesn't, you move to the next step. And by God's grace, they will turn. And if not, you go to the next step. But it's always done in humility and with love and view. Now, as one who is receiving discipline from others, we need to understand that this is the most loving thing for us. We don't want to be caught up in sin and be allowed to continue in it. We need to recognize that all of us have blind spots, every single one of us. And we need those who are closest to us to have the courage to lovingly correct us before it gets out of hand. All of us are capable of terrible, terrible things. How many examples can you think of right now where terrible sins came to light when there are so many signs, so many warning signals along the way that went unchecked, maybe even for years? We just made every other excuse. We saw it. We made every excuse to say nothing. We lacked the courage we lack the love to do the hard thing. It dishonors God when we do that. Or maybe we just didn't think it was our place. I know that can be an obstacle. Who am I, after all? Who am I to confront them about their, their sin when I'm just as ugly and sinful and, in fact, probably doing worse things? That is a lie that will allow this body to be destroyed by sin. You want to know if God will remove the lamp? Don't test Him. 
we will be eaten alive by this our own sin if we don't take it seriously. You do have the authority to say something. You must say something. You must say it to me. I need people in my life that are willing to say something. Consider David and Bathsheba. Do you think David just randomly found himself one day on the top of that building, that roof, without any signs of drift or of sexual sin? I doubt it. That's not how it's worked in my life. As Casting Crown sings, it's often a slow fade. And David lacked people, clearly, he lacked people in his life who loved him enough to say that difficult thing when they saw those little signs along the way until Nathan. Until Nathan came around. Praise God for the Nathans in our lives. I wonder how deep David would have drifted if it weren't for Nathan. And I wonder how far we would drift. Having our hidden sins exposed is an incredibly gracious and loving thing. It is a gift from our Heavenly Father. We need to remember this from Hebrews. It says, My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are Ill, illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in His holiness. When others discipline us, when they say that hard thing to us, when they send that text, or they make that phone call, they do so as God's instrument of love. And in doing so, it proves that God is our Father. We don't want to be that professing only, that professing believer in the church who is living a life of sin without any correction from anyone. If we are left without discipline, then you are an illegitimate child. You are not a son or a daughter of the Most High. You want to have assurance of salvation in your life? Pray that God would send you a Nathan, that we would be a church full of Nathans. How much does this turn things around in our minds? While painful, I need you to say something. With the bride of Christ and the wedding day in view, I need you to say something. If I didn't emphasize this enough earlier, I want to now that the vast majority of discipline that a church should occur in the ordinary courses of relationships, the everyday mundane parts of life, the mundane relationships every day of the week as a part of an ongoing passion for discipleship. A passion for longing to see one another mature. Striving together side by side. Discipline can happen 
while sitting under the preaching of the Word on Sunday mornings. It can happen in midweek small group studies. It can happen with a tender word from your spouse on the way home. Discipline can happen at lunch, at Culver's. It can happen at double dates at the local Mexican restaurant. This can happen with a text or a phone call. This should be happening each and every day of the week. Those aren't random examples. That's where I've received it. And I'm thankful. The question is, is this happening to you? We are very needy and interdependent people. We cannot hope to grow in Christ-likeness, and we cannot hope to reveal what we're intended to reveal on our own. If you've heard anything over these last four or five weeks, learn that. We need each other. We need this congregation. And this is precisely why this local congregation, each and every one of us, are so critically important. If we have any longing to glorify God by revealing His manifold wisdom to the heavenly places, we will give ourselves fully to this thing called the local church. These relationships are irreplaceable. They are so important. And the people who have given themselves to this local congregation really matters. Otherwise, how are we to know exactly who are we submitting to? Who are we responsible to? Who are we covenanting with exactly? This might be the most important thing in all the universe. If this household here at CBC truly believes who we are in Christ, we will eagerly and joyfully accept our responsibilities to protect, proclaim, and provide an apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially through church discipline, and wielding those keys to the kingdom even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult.